Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Alarm! Alarm! Welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray, James Holland, uh, your second World War podcast. Do you know Jour? Um, how are you, Jim? Yeah, I'm not too bad, actually. And, and could that... That opening two words be more appropriate oh, well, to the one we talk about today, but we'll, we, I don't want to reveal yeah. what we're going to talk about yet, just yet, because no, no, you know, well, build I'm, the I'm anticipation. Think, yeah, 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 um, yeah, no, I'm good, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I was careering around the country last week, so I was in Cambridge on Thursday, and I was at Hay on Y on, on Friday. It was all good fun. So, yes, I'm, well, I mustn't forget, I just mustn't forget to mention is that I am finally doing a kind of sort of Sherwood yeah. Rangers Brothers in Arms tour of Normandy. Yes, you are, aren't you? At the very end of April, beginning of May next year. Yeah. So before all the hordes yeah. descend for Normandy 80th. So we're going to yeah. go and follow all Brilliant. the all the places for for five days or whatever it is um, that the Sherwood Rangers were in Normandy from from their landing on, on Gold Beach all the way down to crossing yeah. of the Noiro and all that. Um, so Fabulous. it's going to be great fun. And uh, doing this for Trip Smiths. So if you Google Trip Smiths, Brothers in Arms or Trip Smith's James Holland, um, yep. up it will come. Uh, it'd be very nice to see anyone who fancies joining me on that. I don't think I'll be Fabuloso. doing it again, to be honest. Excellent. Unique once, once in a lifetime opportunity. <laughs> yes. Etc. Yeah, oh, how are you? Time. How are you um, getting on? Yeah. I'm very well, yeah. Um, uh, progress I'm being of, made um, on Arnhem. Progress being made, and I had a very nice meeting with, um, well, with basically your designer, who I, oh, I yeah. inherited your designer. Yeah, um, the lovely Phil. Uh, um, that Phil, who's who's a listener. So, hello, Phil. Yeah, fact, he's Phil's absolutely amazing. Nice independent company member. Hello, Phil. How are you? Thanks for thanks for listening. Um, <laughs> we, 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 we were talking about stuff, and he went, yeah, yeah, you talked about that on the podcast. The other day, I thought, God, he, he, really, he really does listen to it. So, you know, discussions about Google Earth and stuff, or how to do, sort of do a 1940s Google Earth is the sort of... Um, the, the thing to try and do. Anyway, uh, we have Waste Fest, by the way. Um, Jim and I, um, uh, last at the end of last week, were wrestling with what the programme is going to be. We're, we're um, pretty much done now. Almost done. For now, I mean, obviously... A few tweaks and changes. Um, I'm still, uh, to be honest, I'm still um, sort of mentally sifting, having read the Dudley Qua- Clark memoir, Rob Hutton's book, The Illusionist. I think... The more I think about it, and the more I think about Cascade, which is the thing he did in where yeah. he faked salt troop numbers and, and basically trickled this idea, this picture out to the Germans. The more I think about that. And then, of course, Bodyguard is the sort of inheritor of that. The more I think about that, the more amazing it is that it actually ends up with Churchill going, why can't we do this? We've got 40,000 men in Crete. <laughs> or Cyprus or wherever it is We've got 40,000 men in Cyprus why can't we do this and basically and Clark files it under you know hostile elements fooled or whatever <laughs> you know because Churchill's been skim reading the intelligence briefs and has misunderstood well, I mean to be fair he does have a lot of reading matter every day well he has a lot he's got a lot on his plate but, the, yeah, but, the, but it's just you. there's something really funny about him him fooling it that it, that, that it worked it, it's that convincingly painted a picture it's such an interesting and it's such an interesting idea because um why why is it first airborne and six airborne division well because the idea is the british are going to form seven and so you've <laughs> is that really safe yeah 
Except they don't. They can't. They haven't got the people. So you end up with bonkers anyway. They haven't got the means of delivering them, etc., etc. Exactly. Yeah, but you, 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 it's one and six. So you assume there's two, three, four, five, and then, and then uh, you, you name, you name a battalion seventh airborne division for a bit. Create the impression that there are seven. I mean, it's, 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 it's simple. But if you're, you know, accepting that there's a fog of war, yeah, you sort of put these lurk. The the idea that these sort of lurking shadows that you Clark's method is to make sure that all the intelligence and all the stories he offers the Germans, there's an out. So when it turns out to be wrong they can go oh it was wrong all along and you, you know that there's enough there's enough in what he offers them to for them to go of course it's uh, uh, there was right. something that contradicted that um which is i think the, the subtlety and ingenuity yeah. that because because it, it sat with min- mincemeat alongside it which which um rob sort of thinks the problem with mincemeat is all terribly obvious and the fact that mincemeat well you would agree with that wouldn't you i mean it's hard but but you know he also and of course it's after the event but the fact that mincemeat rumors get out change about the course really of quite, world war ii well exactly but rumors get out about it quite quickly Montague tries to write a book about it quite quickly yeah. and succeeds and then writes the movie, you know, he's involved in the movie and everything. Yeah, the fact yeah. that, you know, there's a film about it, you know, only a decade later so suggests that really it's not that important, is it? Because it's because you've blown it. It's blown as an idea straight away. And I think that that's really interesting. That's, you know, and it, obviously it's a gri- it's a good story because it's sort of grisly and it shows allied ruthlessness and all this sort of thing. Whereas what Clark's doing, this is a very subtle thing of having guys in Istanbul and running the cheese, you know, r- running mm. Levy, who's cheese, and running all the, you know, the fake contacts yeah. that he's got for Levy, and, and then being plugged into Double Cross. And I think there's a really amazing moment where Clark is basically taken to Bletchley and they go, yes, we've been we've been paying attention to your work. <laughs> they, they, they can see him. They can see what he's doing with Cascade in their signals, you know, yeah. in, the, in the German estimations of British strength. It's amazing. Absolutely but also amazing. he comes but across, the, but, I think the other thing about him is that he's just a very, very attractive character. I mean, oh yeah, you know, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he's he's clever and he's witty and he's vain and 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 all these yeah. sort of things, which which makes him just snob. the most yeah. bit of a snob, all those sort of things. But 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 impossible to dislike. Um, yeah. In fact, actually, yeah. to really like rather a lot, and you know yeah. that makes him such a great case. He's such a great British sort of smart, clever, eccentric kind of character. Of which the the stuff of which the you know victory and the war is made, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, and also he's sort of he's very he's focused on making it look really easy. And obviously, his, they all say his staff work is impeccable. Absolutely, everything about how he how he gets it done. You know, he's completely thorough. He's working incredibly hard, but he's making it all look terribly effortless. easy. You know, he's yeah. effortless. And I think that that's that's also incredibly attractive. He's he's not oh. doing this whole. You know, I'm working awfully hard, don't you get it? I mean, I love the sort of side stories that one of his secretaries realises that if they've invented loads of fake units, that means she can throw balls so they can have a... <laughs> they can have a, you know, they can have the made-up battalion ball right. once a week if they want. And that makes it that makes it look credible. These units are socialising and all that sort of thing. It's really, really funny. It's really cool. Anyway. Yeah, I, um, I, anyway. I love to. I thought it's a terrific book. I, I really think it's a terrific book. Yeah. And I, I hope it does really well for Rob. He absolutely deserves yeah. it. Now, uh, funnily enough, I was talking to a friend yesterday about Greyhound um, and how much he was in, you know, how much he was looking forward to Masters of the Air and how much he loved Greyhound. So... And then, which coincides with you having sent me this book to read. Well, I just, um, yes. And, well, I, I was suddenly thinking, I, I was just sort of, you know, I, I, I've, I've gone down a bit of a, a, a non-book rabbit hole um, yep. with looking into tribal class destroyers. And this sort of yes. life on the seas. And I, and I was rereading bits of The Good Shepherd, also known as Greyhound, yep. when I was finishing off this, this novel I've been doing. Finished, by the way. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, handed no, in, which is exciting. I've done that last week. That led me to think. God, wouldn't it be? You know, we don't do enough navy on this on this podcast. Just don't no, don't, don't do enough. I was thinking, well, it would be good to do a really good good convoy. You know, what what which convoy should we do? So I started sort of nosing around, and then I came across Peter Gretton, who who has cropped up so many times. Um, but kind of peripherally for me, not least when I was doing Malta all those years ago, because he won a DSO uh, when he was on. He was commander of HMS Wolverine. Um, which is a destroyer um, on Operation Pedestal. And so he keeps cropping up and he ended up staying in the Navy post-war. And he's obviously tough as old boots and exactly the sort of, you know, I mean... Fifth Sea Lord. He was the, the kind of character on yeah. which the success of the Royal Navy in the Second World War was founded. Yeah. You know, kind of started yeah. the war in his late late twenties, sort of you know early thirties. Yeah. By the end of it, got 
three DSOs, DSC to his name, all that kind of stuff. You know, he's right up there. Mm. Um, and anyway, he, he wrote this very, very detailed account of one single convoy, which is yeah. absolutely not the most remarkable convoy at all by any stretch of the imagination. Right. It's convoy HX231. So this is sailing from, and this is a fast convoy, in inverted commas, because it's not fast yeah. at all, um, going yeah. from ultimately um um halifax and nova scotia all the way to liverpool um in the end of march beginning of april 1943 so at an absolute pivotal yeah. moment in the battle of the atlantic he turns up in the world at war so it, 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 he he's he's in right. the right of course episode, he does yes i'd forgotten that yeah I'd so, so that. people remember that he's he's you know he's the he's the the, the vo- one of the navy royal navy voices that i mean he's pure royal navy you know he's He's Dartmouth. He's he's done. You yeah. know, he's done the. He's as Royal Navy as you possibly as you possibly could be. Got a DSO nineteen forty six for mounting a landing party in Haifa during one of the kind of Arab flare ups in Palestine. Uh, anyway, he wrote this incredibly yeah. detailed account, and it's utterly compelling because what he does, I think, think better than any other personal account I've got, is he explains everything. So he does it. There's no assumed knowledge whatsoever. He explains absolutely everything, why they're doing it, and what what I think comes across so well, in a way that I've you don't even get really in the Good Shepherd stroke Greyhound. All the variables, the constant guesswork between the U-boat commanders and the escort commanders and it and it's con- you're constantly having to make calculated risks and decisions based on hunch and likelihood second guessing and it's the whole thing is the most astonishing cat and mouse and hoping that that, that that you know you see something you hope that everyone else has seen something have they seen it what was it you see you hear a light you see a thing you don't hear a bang so you don't think it's a you know and so on and so, so. i mean what's really i mean he's he, the way he sets out his stall is really interesting i also chose convoy hx231 selfishly because i was the escort commander and because i wanted to find out what really happened now amazing which, which makes isn't it me th- now now that is amazing because ridley scott of course about his napoleon film said what do you historians know you weren't there you don't know what happened here is a man who commanded a convoy who's the escort commander who's saying i wanted to find out what happened i was there and i don't know what happened so yeah there's the, the, the direct thing this is i've been careful to write the narrative impersonally and i trust objectively and i've been as ready to attribute blame as praise to my performance yeah so things absolutely fascinating and he's tried he says i want to introduce the reader to the human problems of life in a convoy escort and the merchant ships under its protection it's it's, it's which he does with bells f- on Oh, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible. He, I mean, there's really a simple does detail. Come across the human problems. And, 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 and yeah. what you also get is, is and I, the thing that's most striking for me, and we should maybe talk about this when we get to the end of this, I think this will be two podcasts on yeah. this, yeah. Um, it, it is actually the importance of experience and, and yeah. a naval skill and nous compared to yeah. inexperience. And, and you're yeah. seeing on this convoy, you're seeing both examples. And and, yeah. and 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 what is absolutely clear to me is that for all the skill of the escorts, the B seven escort group that that is beetling around, and the air power and all the rest of it that comes yeah. into play, and the support group that comes into play, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, what is absolutely patently clear is had this been 1941 and Kretschmer and Preen and they're all going to the bottom, yeah. The, the, I mean, we'll, you know, the, we'll, U-boat, we'll the, the U-boat situa- involved simply don't have enough skill to be able to do what they need yeah. to do yeah. by this stage yeah. of the war. Well, 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 we'll get to the yeah, we'll get to the stage of the war in a moment. But just just a couple of tiny insights that he put, that 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 here's the thing about how the a lot of the men are sleeping. A, on deck above deck i know isn't that amazing amazing i found that i found that absolutely extraordinary um particularly from the in the corvettes in the particular corvettes yeah because because uh, no one wants to be torpedoed there were were indeed men who unable to stand the thought of being trapped below when off duty were trying to get some rest in corners of the wet cold upper decks and this fear was one of the worst problems facing a captain. Of those men who refused to sleep below, many carried out their jobs efficiently, but others undoubtedly allowed their fears to affect their conduct, the conduct of their duty. The captain would ask himself, should A, B or C be put ashore as unsuitable? To be reliable, the answer needed the qualities of a psychologist as well as the professional judgment of a seaman. I, I just think I, I, it had never occurred to me that, that people 
would do that. And now, and yeah, now and it's happening a lot out. in the merchant ships as well, isn't it? In freighters. Yeah. And of course you, of course you do that. I mean, you know, because the last thing you want to be is below the waterline when a torpedo hits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You exactly. might get cold, anyway. you might get wet, you might get a flu, but you, you you'll still be yeah. alive. That's the principle. March nineteen forty three. Um, in nineteen forty two has been has been so. There's been a happy time in in uh, nineteen forty. And then, yes, and then midsummer to autumn, yeah, yeah, and then happy time but, for the U boat cruise, no, I should add. For you, yes, for the U boat U boat cruise. So, I mean, in 1942, it's seven million seven hundred ninety thousand tons of shipping sunk. Yes, I mean that's I a mean, that's a that's a huge amount, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know how you get your head around that that amount. Yeah, actually, and this yep. is at the same time as torches in the planning, or torches having to happen. And, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 I mean, the, the, we've talked about this before. How, how on earth have the Americans turned their economy around to the point where they can, you know, within, basically within a year and a bit of the war starting, they're, they're invading North Africa. It's sort of but bananas, really, isn't it? But they, but they do it. And yep. with those shipping losses as well. Yes. Yeah, so the, by the, the end, the of, by, of by the time of the Casablanca conference in January 1943, there is a there is a shipping crisis, and the shipping crisis is yeah. is caused by a number of different things the first one is 7.79 million tons of shipping sunk in 1942 the second one is because of the 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 vast and ever-increasing global demand you know soviet union nationalists in china accelerating pacific war um but 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 one of the immediate short terms is is the fact that the tunisian campaign has gone on much longer than everyone thinks so it's still having to be surprised it's just upset all shipping plans and because between april and and 1942 and may 1943 the priority for u.s shipyards is building assault craft which they don't have enough of rather than freighters so all all of which adds up to a perfect storm of kind of not enough shipping which means that that one of the reasons why at casablanca there's such a um a, 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 a an urgency to win the Battle of the Atlantic is to try and right this situation, <laughs> you know, to well, help the situation. I mean, because obviously, if you know how much shipping is going to come across the Atlantic, that that makes future planning a hell of a lot easier. I mean, Churchill basically, I mean, sums it up pithily, doesn't he? So the the, the defeat of the U boat is the prelude to all effective aggressive operations, because yeah, know, and he and he's he's absolutely bang on. You've just illustrated because Tunisia's gone on too long. You've got a shipping. You've got a pinch on shipping, and because there's a pinch on shipping, Tunisia is going on too long. I mean, these things, these things are Mobius strips, aren't they? They come back, they come back on themselves. If you if you can't if you can't supply, you can't win, and if you can't win, it affects supply. You know, round the thing goes on itself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is which is you know we we we've said it many times on this podcast that the 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 Atlantic War, as Mark Milner calls it, and I think quite rightly, is uh, as opposed to the Battle of the Atlantic, is um. It is the, the the most strategically important campaign of the entire Second World War because everything flows through it. Um, and without it working properly, the Allies can't hope to kind of succeed in the way that they want to succeed. So so it, it is absolutely vital. And, 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 you know, the sort of revisionist views on, on the kind of importance of the Battle of the Atlantic and, or, or otherwise and on the amount of shipping lost. I mean, overall, if you take take the number of ships lost compared to the number of sailings, it's only one point four percent in the battle in the in the uh, in the Atlantic, um, and it's certainly true that eighty five percent of convoys get through unscathed. But that again is over the entire war. But a quarter of all ger- of a quarter of all British British merchant vessels are are, are sunk. Well, t- so yes, it is. So tell, that to the men, you know, tell that to the men sleeping on deck because they don't want to be. You know, correct and we, exactly we, and, and, we come back, and we come back around to that thing of of and we've talked about it we talked about it when we were talking about a bomber cruise about you know the eighth air force when they first first start flying missions how do you get people to do this how how on earth do you persuade people to, to do this on, on what uh, you know full stop and you do it by by improving your training improving your kit uh, gaining experience and improving having, the number having, of escorts yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But I yeah, mean, it isn't. Escorts, it isn't yeah. so very. You know, being a merchant crewman, for example, it's not so very dissimilar from being on a on a you know flying fortress crew, because obviously you 
you know, the chances of, of you being sunk on an individual convoy are pretty small, you know, if you're one of 60 or one of 40. Um, on the other hand, accumulatively, you know, your luck is, you, 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 those odds are, are decreasing every time you go. And everyone knows that. And, and, and I think one of the things that, that must have been so debilitating for all the crews, whether they be on the escorts or whether they be particularly on the merchant vessels in the in the convoy, is the debilitating tension there must be. You know there's U-boats around. But, you know, and it's absolutely clear when U-boats are kind of hovering around you, like, you know, swarming around you like sharks, and you can't see them, and you don't know when it's going to be you, and you're just going to be on edge the whole time. I mean, it must have been absolutely horrendous. After Casablanca, they then have a they then have a, an Atlantic convoy conference in Washington on the first 12 days of March 1943, presided over by the legendary Admiral Ernest King, who, as we all know, is, a, um, is very much a Pacific first kind of guy but 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 um various things agreed you know which is a uh, there's going to be an, um, a, a northwest atlantic command um which will be under the commander of a, of a canadian uh, and, and they will the rapidly growing and and um increasingly impressive royal canadian navy will will take the kind of lead on that also plan to keep escort groups together far more possible uh, uh, much more than had been the case so what would tend to happen is you'd form an escort group and you know you might have um the, the, the makeup of that escort group might change quite a lot over the course of six months. You know, come and go, ships refitted, another one comes in, another one goes out. And they, they, from now on, they decide they're going to really try and keep that group as a group so that you have the benefits of unit cohesion and, and mutual trust and, and all that kind of stuff, all of which which makes makes perfect sense better training of course so you put in charge you know the escort group commander is someone like peter gretton who has been there done it you know been at narvik been at mediterranean been on transatlantic convoys already you know there's not much you can sort of teach him and then obviously the other big thing the big changes is the the increase in numbers of of very long range aircraft and vlrs are very long range and then they're primarily b24 liberators that can fly for up to 16 hours at one time um, and they're operating out of out of newfoundland um out of iceland um out of um northern ireland as well quite often taking six hours to get to the convoy and and it should also be said that the <laughs> u-boats have moved away from the east coast of north america of of, of the american yeah. coast by this point the caribbean and north america and have moved back to the the, the mid the mid-atlantic the mid-ocean um where there is still well, so the, the air gap the air gap exactly but the air gap is closing that's the point um yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, um but but of course the allies even at this point just don't have enough vlrs to do what what they want to do in the same way well and and there's resistance within within the british establishment about vlrs isn't there the, the, harris isn't harris isn't going to um give up planes if he can possibly help it there's a tiny bit of sort of inter-service digging from gretton um about you know about Harris's attitude to to aircraft. If you can see that bomber war is obviously relying on materials from the, the war in the Atlantic, then the which one comes first? I mean, it's not it's not even a chicken and an egg, is it? It's um if you want to win yeah. the bomber war, you're going to have to win the war in the Atlantic first. And, and it goes back to your point that you 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 always make very well is 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 that you're always operating six months ahead of where you want to be, and and you know the the just aren't enough of these VLRs and, and the VLRs, you know, Harris thinks they could be better used. So, I mean, what does he say? In the present case, it is inevitable that at no distant date the Admiralty will recognise that U-boats can effectively be dealt with only by attacking the sources of their manufacture. Well, you know, he's 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 completely wrong about that. Yeah, he's completely wrong. You know, that is not the only way that you can effectively deal with, with, with no. U-boats. And in fact, fact no. that isn't the way they deal with The best way to deal with U-boats no. is to sink them out in the middle of the Atlantic, which is which is what they do. And actually, it's interesting. And kill I mean, kill you know, their because, crews. Because, so you... So you got you got the the Kriegsmarine's um, right. experience base. You know, he's as well. just completely wrong about that. It, it's interesting seeing him. It's interesting. Gretton obviously feels the need to get that off his chest when he's talking when he's talking about this because he because and and you're right. He's he's absolutely he's absolutely right because again, if it comes down to the, the moral component, there's no better way than there's no better way than um, undermining the U-boat service than sinking lots of U-boats and making the crews think it's. Um, horrible and pointless. That has to, that has to be a factor too. In March, there were, in March, Bletchley Bletchley can't read um, uh, Enigma at this point, can it? Um, uh, and yeah, which is which I think is 
which is which is interesting. I mean, th- whereas I had think a, the I mean, Griggs Marina, the Beedinst has has cracked quite a lot of the uh, of the oh, allied yeah, codes. No, British a long codes. time ago, they're, they're, they've been nosing around in the British British cipher since Norway. So um, they've done they've done ve- they've done very very well against. Okay, you know, they're, they're, you know, if if this is another battle, they're they're currently in the they're currently winning. Um, uh, which I think you know that there is there is no sort of there is no smooth graph of British code code breaking. It's it's it, as you said about the the destroyer war it's cat and mouse and there's been there's been cat and mouses the germans the germans don't know that they've been broken up broken into up to this point but they have been but at this point they they have that they have that um advantage don't they I mean, it's, it's simple as that yeah uh, and, and there is there is but but there is also absolutely no question the u-boats are really hurting allied shipping in the first couple of months of of first three months of of 1943 so so in First ten days of March, for forty-one ships are sunk. I mean, that that's four a day going down between the eleventh to twentieth of March. Forty-four more. So, so by the twentieth of March, half a million tons has been sunk already. I mean, that's insane numbers, isn't it? Uh, and then you've got Professor Lindemann, our old friend uh, Lord Charwell, um, who's who's Churchill's um, chief scientific advisor, and so, so saying, you, you know, in March nineteen forty-three, he's going, we're consuming three quarter of a million tons more than we're importing. In two months, we could not meet our requirements if this has continued. I, I've started to think of him as kind of like um, Churchill's Dominic Cummings. Um, if yeah, he's a bit. Yeah. <laughs> he's got, you know, he's an expert. A big on round head he, and these sort of, yeah, those little sort of antenna coming up. Sort of, and a sort of myth-busty attitude to everything. If only you did it differently, it would all be fine. Hey, look, read my blog, Lindemann's blog. Him and Solly Zuckerman. Anyway, the, um, yes, but I mean... So that's the situation. He, it's critical. Yeah, yeah he's right... So it is. It is. It is. Well, I know because I think I think I've been guilty a little bit in the past of sort of blithely sort of saying, "Ah, no, it was all in the bag." You know, there's no. I mean, there is no question that the the U-boats couldn't win in in the Atlantic. I think from from May 1941. But could they seriously hamper the Allied war effort? Absolutely. And and there is no question that 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 in March and April 1943, as we build up to that crucial month of may 1943 when suddenly all the kind of, sort of long uh um changes and developments in the atlantic war sort of come to fruition on the part of the allies and and start to go pear-shaped for for, for, for the germans up until that moment it is it's super tense super critical and and the amounts of shipping getting lost are just of a horrific nature and and it's still winter, and this is the point because because the most effective time for the U-boats is winter, where it's dark, um, and the days are short, and the weather is worse. Because the worse the weather is, the harder it is to read radar, re- pick up on um, radar. Harder it is to pick up on ASDIT, which is you know what we know is now know as sonar, because you've got waves and you've got other disturbances to the water, which can kind of cause different um, uh, signals. Um, you've got, you know, it's harder to spot conning towers in a, in a, in a, you know, when you've got shadows of waves and all sorts of stuff. For all sorts of reasons, in the high summer, it's kind of, it's easier for the Allies. And in, in, in the winter and the spring, it's much, and, and the autumn, it's much, it's much tougher and much better for the U-boats. Yes, anyway. Which I think is, which, well, but I think that's a really interesting point because you'd assume bad weather's bad weather's bad weather. And that makes, if you're operating at sea, it just makes it more difficult full stop, whoever you are. But because the, because the U-boats, are relying on you know c- concealment so being concealed being harder to see is a is a win operationally you're you're automatically if the weather's bad that's good for you even though even though being able to attack is more difficult if you're a u-boat in bad weather you're you're, well, certainly, you're also on, safe. certainly on on high certainly on the surface yeah on the surface but, but you're safer and yeah uh, and that in the that in the end is the the the, the what you're after, isn't it? If you're a U-boat captain, is is being able to remain concealed for the for the critical moments where you need to be. Because after all, there's this, this thing that they go at walking pace underwater, 16 knots on the surface if they can. It's the business of charging the batteries, making sure there's fresh air and all that sort of stuff for the crew. That you you yep. that you really actually that I mean they're not they're submersibles rather than or they 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 can submerge right. but not. They're not ocean-going underwater vessels. You'd think that bad weather would create a level playing field of things being difficult for everybody, but actually it doesn't. It makes it no. harder for the escorts. Yeah, substantially, substantially. Yeah. yeah, and again, this is why sort of Gretton's so good on all this stuff because he he, he yeah. explains why so 
so so so clearly. Um, mm. Maybe we should take a break, and then we should, um, and then should we get on to? Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, the formation of convoys. Let's do that. Uh, we'll be we'll be taking a brief break to form a convoy ourselves, and we will return in formation <laughs> in a second. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Make You Talk. Um, James and I have just set up a signal flare um, and we're forming around the... <laughs> star uh, shell. Star shell and we're forming around the um, uh, bearing that I've sent him. Um, uh, so, and, and illuminating the, the constra- uh, how, how, how a convoy works. Well, I mean... Brightness. Of all, I mean, it's a it's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because let, let's let's just if you you pick a convoy out of a hat. None of the vessels are the same, or some of the vessels are the same. Maybe half a dozen of them are, are, are Liberty ships or whatever. How how on earth do you you know? You, so you've got to go at the slowest person's pace. So you can you can have you can have a destroyer that can do it. I don't know. W- w- was it the tribals that can do thirty six knots? We were talking about the old twenty six yeah. knots mm. that can really yeah, that can 36. really cut about thirty six knots. So can really cut about. Really Really, really go some whatever because the thing full of grain you know or full of zinc or whatever that's at the back of the back of the convoy can only do six knots or four knots or you know yeah three or whatever oh so obviously the destroyer speed is all about being a being able to um encounter and engage uh u-boats anyway or catch up with the convoy once it's done the encountering engaging you know so it's not not yep. off on its own and all that sort of thing you, you've you've merchant vessels. You've merchant vessels of Norwegian merchant vessels. You've Dutch ones, probably American ones. Yep, Swedish, from American, all over the British. World, crews from all over the world. Crews with different expectations of uh, the, uh, of all sorts of things, haven't you? So, so right from the start, the simple thing of a convoy, the idea of a convoy. You know, you're herding cats, aren't you? Basically, I mean, just just unbelievably complex thing to do and and yeah yeah i mean i mean the interesting thing is that in the march 1943 is the first time they start putting out 60 ship convoys normally they're they're, they're 40 so 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 convoys are divide, divided into two classes they're either fast or they're slow <laughs> but fast is not fast it's it's an average of nine knots an expectation of nine knots averaged across the atlantic which makes it yeah. a very you know that's like a 16 17 day voyage Eastbound convoys, HX, coded HX from Halifax, are um, their HX if they're fast, and their SC, Sydney, Cape Breton in Canada, if they're slow. So that's how you know just by the code name whether it's a fast convoy or a slow convoy. If it's westbound, it's ON if it's fast, and it's ONS if it's slow. And by the end of March 1943, fast convoys are sailing every six days. And slow ones every eight days. I mean that that is just in, an incredible amount, isn't it? Well, you're just thinking about the. I mean, before before they even put to sea, the the the, the pressure on on the docks and the stevedores yeah. and how you yeah, yeah, how yeah, you yeah, organise yeah, yeah. that loading, and then you've got the yep. next convoy queuing or in a stacking pattern or whatever, or it off and needing to be protected. I mean, the sheer scale of it, because obviously modern absolutely shipping... absolutely makes your head hurt, doesn't it? Well, because modern sh- trade shipping that we have now, you know, they're not in convoys, so they, they you know, they come in one by one and, and be dealt, or, or however. It's the fact yeah. you've a load of ships all turning up at once that need your attention. But just imagine what 60 tra- ships looks like going out to sea yeah. and trying to form up into a, into a, yeah. into a rectangle. And the interesting thing about the 60 is is that... So, basically, convoys are formed that they're wide rather than deep. So, they're kind of... Well, they're six miles wide. A 60-ship convoy is six miles wide, and it's and it's 
each ship has a number and it might not be one to 60. It might be whatever, you know, it might be one, two, one. It might be one, four, three. It might be 28. But anyway, your number, you're given a number and that number is put into a position and there, there would be, say, 14 columns of five or whatever to um, in a convoy of 60, something like that, between four and five. And they would all be 2,000 yards. The columns would be 2,000 yards apart and maybe, you know, what is it, 400 yards in between, uh, you know, a stern, one, two, three, and you know, five in the line. So you might be column 12, ship three. That means you're the from... from, from North to south, you are the 13th column and you are third in the line from the front. So that's how that works. And, and Professor Pratchett Blackett, great friend of the show, who is the head of Naval Operation Research, who invents the Blackett site and all the rest of it, he's the, he's the guy who backs uh, Barnes Wallace for the dams rate. He's when the Navy get in early before the RAF do. And he makes the point, point that actually increasing the, the convoys by 20 is actually much more efficient because it doesn't massively increase the perimeter size of the... It doesn't need to nasa, massively increase the perimeter size. doesn't make it that much harder for an, for an escort of, of eight vessels to, to look after them um, for 60, whether it's, whether it's 60 or 40. And there's lots of sort of harumphing from the, from the Admiralty, but actually they then agree. Uh, and of course, that, you know, that, that just does make a big difference because you've got... The, the more of you there are, the more are going to get through. Yeah, you know, it's as simple yeah. as that. Right, and the more, and, but also, and also, the more pairs of eyes there are, and the more the the, the more, all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And even merchant ships have have some protection. I mean, they have sort of you know Erlikons on them and all the rest of it, and flares and you know, and so on and so forth. So, so you know, it's it's yeah, you know, it's 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 it does mean a greater pressure on Liverpool and Greenock and Gurukh and all these kind of places and and Nova Scotia and and Halifax, Nova Scotia. But 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 it does make the chance of getting through greater. There's no question about it. Uh, which is interesting. So, the, Uber, so that's how convoys set up. Well, you, but you, you know, you, it, 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 that in a way kind of also feels kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because it feels like a bigger, juicier target for for wolf packs, doesn't it? That that, that you're serving up more ships for the for the Germans to attack. You can see why. If you know the. the, the the counterintuition is that surely ships on their own going as fast as they possibly can are better off, it's, which is where the thinking starts, isn't it? Convoys are seen as a kind of last resort, aren't they? C going into convoy is seen as a, is seen as a, oh, we're going to have to do that again. And then perfecting it is seen as a, you know, like you say, the people are dragging their heels about, about how best to do it. Because, because, because I think you end up going at three knots all the way across the Atlantic. And that feels like, and with 60 ships, that feels like a great big fat juicy target, doesn't it? It feels, that, that must feel very, on, on one level, very vulnerable. Uh, uh, well, uh, slow, well, slow, slow convoys are going at, um, they're, they're no more than 40. Um, in in size rather than sixty, it's only the fast one. The fast ones in inverted commas are, 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 are sixty ship yeah. convoys, where they are going. You know, they're going aiming to go at least nine. Um, and obviously, the, the the average speed of the uh, of the convoy depends on the makeup of the convoy. As you say, you've always, always got to go at the pace of the slowest. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're a wolf pack, and, and so so, I mean, we're going to get to the U-boat situation in a second. If you're a wolf pack, sure, surely what you do is pick off the destroyers, Jim. <laughs> And then you can, and then you can sink the convoy at, at your leisure. But the, the, however, that is, that is, however, yes, go on. Well, that's not their mindset, which I, which I, you know, I find which absolutely, I find absolutely extraordinary. They just don't spend amazing. enough time focusing on the escorts. So you default the first thing you should do incredible. is destroy the escorts, and, and they just don't. Yeah. They never do. It's never yeah. their tactics. Yeah. You know, escorts then, are much, much harder to hit, of course, because they're not going yes, straight and steady in a single line. You know, they're moving around all over the place. But even so, it, clearly it makes much more sense to get rid of the escorts. Then you can do what you like, as you say. It's remarkable, isn't it? Um, the tactical uh, so genius of the you, Germans in the Second World War. Well, <laughs> so the, the, the Germans have 116 U-boats. Operating um, in the Atlantic at this point, they've, they've got about three hundred the by this this stage. They've got about three hundred by this stage, and you know you're 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 based on the third, so a third going to and forth, a third kind of training and re-equipping and all the rest of it, and yep. building up, and a third actually on, on in in combat. On that point. that's 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 the the kind of rule of thumb, and and it's not far off it. But but of course by this stage, you know they, they've got they've got these because the U-boat arm was only three thousand men strong in nineteen thirty-nine. It's very difficult to massively expand when you're also at the same time taking really critical losses. And and 
you know, one of the reasons why the spring of 1941 is so crucial in the in the Atlantic War is because so many of the aces, the U-boat aces, get get lost. And by I mentioned at the beginning, kind of sort of you know, Kretschmer, Shepka, and, and and Preen, all three go. In the two of them are killed, one of them taken prisoner between March and May 1941. And and you you know, this experience. These are guys who've been in in submarines since you know the 1930s. They're absolutely no totally what they're about they're incredibly skilled highly trained highly competent bit older got all that kind of sort of gravitas and and, and authority and and all the rest of it and they're just gone and by 1943 the, the, there is literally no one of any significant repute still operating in the u-boat arm by this stage because even those that have survived like eric top teddy Suren, these kind of types they're now very sensibly on training rather than risking their lives out in the Atlantic. What that means is you've got way, way, way more U-boats than you had in 1940 and 1941, but you haven't got that depth of experience. And that's the problem about having the U-boat are being so small in 1939 is that when you do need to suddenly expand, you haven't got that weight of, of, of manpower to be able to spread through and, and take on the, um, you know, and, 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 and lead with the the next generation as it's rapidly expanding so they're having to kind of sort of work on this sort of on the hoof with insufficient training insufficient experience and it and and crucially new boats are being new boat captains are being pr promoted as oberleutnant you know first lieutenant yeah, yeah. way before they should be because pressure of numbers and all the rest of it and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they're out of people and so, so it's ever decreasing I mean, circles that's, that's the point i'm trying to make yeah, I mean, what's their what's their sort of culture from the First World War? Because after all, you know, the the, the U-boat campaign in the First World War was again <laughs> very effective, and, and all, all this sort of stuff. I mean, are they, is it obviously it's it works, and it's 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 actually the it's the it's sort of the one thing you've got that could you know that could on a tactical level to deliver a strategic result. So it seems straight, and they and they know this. They must know this. So it's strange, really, yeah. that, that that they haven't invested so heavily in it that they ought to have done. I mean, it, it is it is peculiar, isn't it? That that and I've got, again, what this will, will come round to is this: this is the problem is you've got Hitler, whose mentality is he needs big, showy battleships to show the public that rearmament's happening, and to do things exactly in the sort of P, he's got to do things in this the is PR a sort of plan of. of yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That that so much the rearmament is is about PR and is about p presenting a thing to people. And submarines submarines don't offer you that. Also, if you build well, a load of submarines, that, I mean, I, I reckon I reckon I reckon fifty U boats all lined up in harbour would look pretty pretty powwow. Particularly when everyone knows how successful the U boats were in the last war. Yes, but but then as a result, and then the, I mean, but of course you, you're then signalling your intentions to your potential enemies. And if you're building lots of U boats, you obviously you obviously want to fight the British, don't you? Because because they're the world's preeminent maritime power. So you rather get you build you build a load of U boats. You rather give the game away that you're considering fighting the british empire that you you, you, you okay. know what well, I mean? yeah, and, absolutely and, and signaling your intentions to the other side and and hitler's intention isn't to fight necessarily the british it's to it's to well not in the 1930s it isn't no not in the 1930s it isn't anyway exactly which is when which is when these things are getting laid down whereas the the british for all their sort of all their sort of pussyfooting about it they they know perfectly well they're going to end up fighting the germans next if they're going to fight anybody so in a peculiar way there's a there's so a lot of destroyers Exactly. So there's a, you know, end up with a cavity magnetron and all that sort of thing. So, so for all the all the British humming and ahhing about fighting the Germans, the, it's the Germans who's in decision in the in the night, lack of intent. I mean, here's this is this is a this is a direct flip of the appeasement story, isn't it? So Germans can't yeah, make yeah. their mind up about who they're going to fight, and that's what they're re that's the thing they're reaping right at this moment. Whereas the British, who've always thought in the end we're going to have to fight. A, a maritime war because we're a maritime power yeah yeah you know absolutely absolutely it's not as interesting it's a funny we've ended up with we go that's a, another uh, another no a little rabbit hole we've, we done we've, yeah we flipped that fried egg over right okay so um but so that's what, the one, situation at the beginning of 1940 yeah. um so, 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 so beginning of 1943 there's lots of U-boats, but they're not very skilled. It's basically the longer short. And of it. how do they but, operate? Because because this is the thing that that, that um, Gretton's book I was really struck by, and and that the, the method that the destroyers have is they figure out that what that the wolf pack they have to ask permission to engage the the U-boats, so they they essentially report back to their to their um 
to the lead boat. Control. I've. Ich habe dieses destroyed. It's not even lead boats. It's controlled back at back at sort of you know in, in northern fact, France. Yes, uh, the, the, yes, northern France. Lorient or whatever. Which is extraordinary, because that doesn't sound much like alpha tactic to me. If what you're having to do. No, uh, and, and and that's also a reflection of of the collapse less, in experience and um, confidence. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 really, it's about it. It's 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 not so much that. It's more about coordinating a wolf pack. So what Dennis is doing by by the spring of 1943 is he you know wolf packs used to be kind of, sort of half a dozen by by now they're kind of formed into groups of 20 20 is considered the kind of op- it's considered pretty much the optimum because after that it gets it gets sort of too unwieldy and too complicated but what that means is you've got to sort of you've got to actually be quite careful about how you do this so what would what would generally happen is the Germans get wind of a convoy sailing so they know it's coming they know kind of roughly what the route is. So what you would do is you would then you you would you would get, then get your U-boats into a kind of massive line, say your twentier each sort you know where the total line is about two hundred eighty miles, something like that, or three hundred miles or two hundred fifty miles, but but a big old stretch, and you would advance towards where you think the convoy is likely to be, and then the moment one of them sees it, spots the convoy. They are then the contact keeper, and all the other U-boats then home towards it. It's like, right, I've got it. It's a, it seems to be a period, you know, it seems to be moving on a, on, you know, on a on a bearing of 045 degrees. You know, I've got it in my sights. And the idea is to try and let the the convoy come onto you, so you can attack it from the front, so that you 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 get into the right position using your surface speed, but then you attack it from under the surface as it's coming towards you. That's basically the idea. But what that means is you you you. The person who makes a contact has to signal that contact, and signals back to control BDU, the the um um you know the the headquarters of the of the U-boat arm, and says you know well I've got this I I found the 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 convoy this is where it is, and then it is control that is feeding the signals back to the other U-boats and saying right this is where the convoy is you know head on this bearing x and and off you go but 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 the contact keeper is not as you as you rightly point out is not allowed to make any contact it is not allowed to attack until given permission to do so and that's because they don't want to kind of to 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 attack prematurely and make the convoy scatter or change thing just before all the 20 have homed in on it that's that that's the main reason What's very interesting is in the in the um, the the official the authorized GCHQ history, uh, John Ferris talks about how that it's really really interesting. He says that the German SIGINT at this point is so good locating convoys and and dis- discovering Allied intentions that actually what it does is it it makes them make terrible operational decisions. He says he says because because. Because the, the, you know, German intelligence, intelligence success lured Germans into operational failures. So he says, because they're, because they're able to do what we're just talking about, because they can, because they can figure this out, figure out how to engage convoys, they, they actually send themselves into engaging convoys and then the allies overpower them. He, he says, um, the Germans, the Germans in the, in the, in the Atlantic are relying purely on their intelligence to conduct the campaign. Whereas the British are relying on their operational, you know, uh, industrial, technological and intelligence capability to fight the campaign. Germans only bring one thing to the party. They will be overwhelmed and destroyed. And then he talks about, you know, but but by the end of it, you know, the the British are deliberately sailing convoys onto the U-boats to draw them into battle to destroy them. Because once they've got the once they've got the thing figured out, they tell the Bedienst where they are. And, you, and and they're they're reading the Bedienst as well. You know they're reading they're reading what the Germans think is happening. But no, obviously March forty three. They're blind at this point. But but by the time it flips, you know the the, the German operational German uh, uh, superiority with with intelligence leads them into operational disaster, which I think is an amazing way of looking at it. Um, yeah, uh, isn't the, it the, the, fascinating? Yeah, absolutely I've never fascinating. Like that. Well, yeah. so from the British point of view, there's there's basically sort of three electronic means of detection. There's 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 yeah. obviously there's radar onboard radar, um, yeah. which most it's of them have off. by this stage. Uh, there's huff yeah. duff high frequency direction finding, which is sort of you know getting picking up radio signals, and then of course there's yeah. ASDEC, which we we now know as sonar so so yeah. huff duff is really interesting M- most of the um the escorts are normally equipped with 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 huff duff not always but 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 most of them yeah. are um and that enables them to pick up these sort of ra- any radio signals that the the u-boats uh, and from where it is you can you can pick it up and the, and the kind of that enables them to 
to pinpoint pretty much where the U-boat is that has sent that signal. Um, and, and the Admiralty also, ha- and get a bearing from it, and, and the Admiralty also has a series of shore-based huff-duff stations, high-frequency direction-finding stations. Yeah. And, and these are scattered through kind of Iceland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, the Azores, and, uh, and so on. And, and, and a massive information is coming in, and, and this is analysed um, um, <clears throat> in the Admiralty tracking room in London. And this is... It's it's also you know other intelligence is coming in as well so so anecdotal from agents from from Bletchley Park all rest of it and it's, and it's a bit like the kind of filter room at, at um or, or the control control room at kind of um Bentley Priory for fighter command you know all this material is coming in and it, and it has to be analysed and then sort of regurgitated and by this point point also most in fact all ocean going escorts even the kind of corvettes and frigates, which are the kind of smaller escorts, have the new centimetric radars, which I think is a Type 247, um, which means that they can detect U-boats out further than before. On a calm sea, about four miles, something like that. You know, which and, doesn't give you that uh, much time, just, but, but... but Well, he says the ASDIC's 2,000 metres, isn't it, basically? If again, the, on, on good weather. On good weather. And, and, and again, we come back... We come back to that. There's a level playing field if the weather's all right, but if it isn't, it, 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 it's very advantageous to the U-boats. So The, peri- so, the perimeter well, of, think- of a 60-ship of a convoy is 60 miles. It was a hell of a distance. And, yeah. you know, really eight escort ships. I mean, you can do it with six, but eight escort ships is the kind of, sort of minimum you want. The problem is, is, is because of the shipping shortage, by, by March 1943, there aren't enough fast destroyers to do what you want yeah. to do you know there's, there's been losses they're still making more and the rest of it but what they're really trying to do is is build bulk and build numbers yeah. to so that you've got enough escorts for these you know convoys every six days and every eight days um yeah. you know so what that actually means is is that every eight days you've got two transatlantic convoys going across which is a hell of a lot all of which need escorting so the way around this is to build smaller boats because they're cheaper and easier and quicker to build than destroyers and destroyers if you think a destroyer is sort of you know 90 to 120 meters in length that kind of scale you know a, a, a corvette is like 60 65 yeah. so it's a similar sort yeah. of length to um to a landing ship tank the lcat outside the yeah. museum in portsmouth for example uh, um, yeah. frigates are a bit bigger um, they're more like kind of 80 but 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 they're pretty small and HX231 has only got six of which yeah. one is a destroyer one is a frigate four a corvette you'd have you'd have one one ship at the front in the bow you know out out front then you'd have two on the kind of sort of port and starboard side then on the two on the beam and then you'd have one at the back and your fastest ship would always be the one at the back because that's the one in, you need to go off and do sweeps if they, something's gone missing or you know ships dropped out or you know that you said your fastest one because it's it's the ablest to 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 get back to the rest of the convoy quickest. We should pause here for our, until our next episode. It's going to be three, will, isn't it? It's going to be three. When we will we will look at the convoy HX two three one and what happens um, in late March. Into April 1943. I don't want to. Give, I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to give anything away. But but it's an amazing story. And and, and it is an extraordinary. I story. really think it's worth doing this in some detail because it is so interesting how these things work. There's so many aspects about these convoys and about the escorts and about the U-boats and about how they operated that one simply just doesn't know. And and so to have this kind of spelt out, I think, is, is with one example, um, I think is a really, really useful exercise. Leave New York at 08.50 hours yep. on the 25th of March. What happens next? We'll see you next week. Uh, we hope you're on the edge of your seats the way we are um, uh, about about HX231 um, and what's to come. Uh, we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Cheerio.